0: This is Positive Parenting, parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. This is Positive Parenting, and I'm Armin Brott. Imagine if every time you praise your child with, Good job! You're actually doing more harm than good. And what about if asking a child, Can you say thank you? is exactly the wrong way to go about teaching manners. And would you still say, I'm going to tickle you, if you knew it had as much potential to terrorize as to delight? In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking about language. And we're going to find out how, despite the very best intentions that we have, our language is also controlling, condescending, and ultimately harmful to our kids. We're going to be focusing on a number of different examples of parent-speak and talk about the often disconnect between the messages that we think we're sending and the ones that our children are actually hearing. Now, of course, this is positive parenting, so we're not going to spend the whole show criticizing the way that you speak to your parent and insinuating that you're a bad parent because of the way that you speak and the language that you're using. No, no, no. We're actually going to be spending most of our time talking about some conscious, compassionate approaches to parenting and some suggestions about how you can respond instead of the way that you might instinctively have responded otherwise. We'll start talking about the undeniable power of language and how it affects our kids and ourselves when Positive Parenting continues right after this. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brant, after this. From the MrDad.com radio network. I feel scared. It's like tiny nails in the air poke my lungs. I start to cough. Sometimes my parents have to take me to the hospital. Today, one out of 13 children suffer from some form of asthma, accounting for nearly one-third of all emergency room visits. I feel like I'm choking. It's kind of like an elephant is on my chest. A little whistle sound comes out when I breathe. But while your child may suffer from asthma, asthma doesn't have to make your child suffer. There are simple ways you can prevent your child's next attack. To learn more, call 1-866-NO-ATTACKS. That's 1-866-662-8822. Log on to www.noattacks.org or call your doctor. Because even one attack is one too many.
1: I feel like a fish
0: with no water. Brought to you by the EPA, the Ad Council, and this station. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Brant, and my guest for this part of today's show is Jennifer Lear, who's the author of Parent Speak, What's Wrong with How We Talk to Our Children and What to Say Instead. Jennifer, thanks for being on the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So let's talk a little bit about how you made this discovery, which I think is probably something that a lot of parents eventually get to, that the, the approach that I'm taking with my children, my best intentions notwithstanding, it just isn't working.
1: How did I get here? Well, I when I first had my daughter, I think I was fairly ill-prepared for parenthood and, you know, like everybody else I had the best intentions and um really had a, a, actually a fairly easy daughter. What I noticed as I was going out into the world, you know, we would go to the park every day and there was a lovely group of parents we'd hang out with or I'd go to the pediatrician or we'd go shopping at the market. What I noticed was that all of a sudden, not only was I speaking in a different way, but friends of mine, all, all everyone I encountered started to use this language that I didn't really hear them use all that often. It was like once you, a child landed in your lap, you started speaking what I call in my own head. Parents speak. It was like you had a child, and then you started saying like, oh my God, she's so cute. <gasps> Good job. <gasps> Look what you can do. And then they're crying. Shh, it's okay. You're okay. And it actually got to the point where I felt like I could predict what adults were going to say to children in a variety of circumstances. And I thought to myself eventually after several months of witnessing this and kind of becoming more and more aware of it was that it was like yes you know it was it's a cultural thing it's in the ether we you know we have kids and we start talking in these specific catchphrases but what i started to wonder was am i speaking to my child in the unique circumstances and individual in front of me or is kind of my culture speaking through me is this what i want to be saying is this helpful are my best intentions translating and I would just think about this very casually, but as time wore on i uh, I really thought about it um, more pointedly and it took me a while I started writing a book I just actually sat down and started writing to see try to make sense of my thoughts and okay. each, and I Anyways, go ahead. Yes, no, I'm just
0: I'm so I'm curious so we so we have a whole bunch of them. In the book you've got 14 different ones and we're not yes, going to get not going to get to all of them
1: that I'm selecting.
0: Sure. Right, right. We're not going to get to all those things, but but start with something like good job, which you know, there's a lot of yes, of information it, yeah. out there about you know, f- praise that that's uh, that ends up doing more harm than good. But generally speaking, what what's the problem with saying good job and and encouraging Effort, or are you actually encouraging results?
1: You know what's interesting about good job is that we use it in so many different circumstances. We use it to be encouraging. We use it to tell kids we're happy with what they did. We use it to tell them we like their artwork. We use it in in so many different ways. We use it to say thank you instead of saying thank you to show that we're appreciative they've cleared the table or cleaned their room, we say good job and um there there are a number of things that are wrong with good job, and then other things aren't wrong with it. but what I find fascinating, just kind of as an aside, is that we use two of the most generic words to send many different messages to our kids. so if my child is showing me a painting and I say "Good job," they feel good and they go on their way, and I go back to whatever i'm doing but i often think it's a a missed opportunity because if they showing if my son is showing me a painting and I'll say how did you decide to use all that red or why did you draw that I noticed such and such he'll say I'm doing that because my um, friend at school was doing black and I didn't like how they were doing it and then a whole world opens up and we have an entire conversation when I just ask, can you tell me about it instead of telling them how good I think what they did is. And I'm not a child art critic. I don't... What does my opinion matter, really? It's more about Hmm. um, the process. Then another example, like I had mentioned, is if my child clears the table, and if I say, good job, I'm not really saying you've done a really good job of picking up a plate and walking it across the room. Uh, What I mean to say is thank you for doing that. It makes my life easier, and it shows that you're... A participating member of the family. So a simple thank you is so much, I think, yeah. more meaningful than a uh, good job is inherently judgmental. So if they didn't do a good job, is it a bad <laughs> job? or am I, I? And if they didn't clear the table, I can say, you know, when you don't clear the table, it makes me feel more taken advantage of that you just think all this work is for me to do. You know, it's like good job doesn't get information across.
0: Right. It's, so I'm, um, I'm curious about this. I'm doing kind of this informal poll just from time to time, and I kind of have a feeling how you're going to answer this question. But okay. uh, what do you think about the word awesome? <laughs> you I mean, know, it, it drives actually, me I actually crazy. use it a yeah. lot. Oh, no. Um,
1: okay. And it, it's very similar to good job, but I only use it when, like, my son loves to do flips. and, and he oh, That's um, pretty when he awesome. Flip, I'll say, That's awesome because i and i'm basically saying i'm impressed and he'll say yeah but that one sucked for he, he is such a critic of himself like he's so far ahead of me in being able to judge a flip so it doesn't really matter what i think of it what he de- wants to do when he shows me a flip is to show me what he's learned he wants to share his passion with me he doesn't want me to judge it because for him Judgment is irrelevant. He's the one who spends hours watching flippers on YouTube. He knows if it's good or not. He just wants to show me what he's up to, and for someone, you know, for to show that, share with his mom his, his passions, and I want to show him that I'm interested. And it's awesome. I, I can't do that.
0: <laughs> okay. All right. So what about something that that I think a lot of people use? I'm not sure. You, you have it in the category of manipulation. But I don't know if yes. it, people deliberately That's manipulate
1: the way that I think it's most damaging, yeah, but
0: well, I was going to go to to another one within that same category of oh, okay big boy, big girl kind of stuff, which we, oh, we yeah. tend to you know do you want to get into your big girl bed or whatever it is and and I had never really thought about it as being manipulative, but I guess it it could be,
1: yeah, I think it absolutely is you know. If you just bought a quote-unquote big girl bed, a regular bed, they're not even a big girl bed, it's just a bed, and and waited for the child to make their own move from the crib to the bed without us selling it, big girl is a sales tool. We're pitching to them that if you are better, if you go sleep in the bigger bed than the crib. Otherwise, why are we doing it? I mean, it's it's on our agenda, on our timeline, and often it happens when somebody's pregnant and they have another child coming up and they don't want to spend another $600 on the crib. They will have a bed for their older child and try to sell them on it. And, you know, two- or three-year-olds, in the scheme of things, aren't big. You know, they're still very young little people, and they'll get to the bed, in my opinion, when they're ready, and we don't need to sell them on it because if they're not ready – they may feel like, oh, my God, now I'm not a big girl. Mommy's disappointed in me, and I feel not ready. You know, you kind of set your kids up to telling them bigger is better. And then ironically, at the other end, we're like, you know, we put on the brakes. You're too young for this movie or or dating or anything. So we want to have, quickly grow up, get rid of your blanket, get rid of your pacifier, get out of the crib, and then we want them to slow down. And we don't really trust their own timeline, and I think we could trust kids a lot more
0: and they really aren't that big, I think, and they probably no, they, they probably all. recognize they're,
1: that right. oh you're a big sister now, yeah, I'm two, I'm an older sister, but and you know technically, you are bigger than the newborn, <laughs> but yeah. but you don't have to you know we sell them on this idea, oh, it's gonna be great to be a big sister it's often very upsetting and scary for children to have, um, a new sibling come in the house at first. You know, you get all your parents' attention and then a new crying human comes and you get less attention. And even if your parents make every effort, they'll never, ever, ever get as much attention as you once had before another sibling came on along. It's just not possible. So there's a, often a period of mourning for children. But when we try to tell them, oh, how great it is to be a big sister, we kind of, deny their experience which makes it harder for them to get over I
0: think I've been talking with Jennifer Lear who's the author of Parent Speak what's wrong with how we talk to our children and what to say instead we're going to take a quick break when we come back we'll keep talking to Jennifer about the things we shouldn't say and what we ought to I'm Armin Brat and you're listening to Positive Parenting In
2: 1977 in Johannesburg South Africa an eight-year-old boy picked up the game of golf from his father. By the age of nine, he was already outplaying him. The odds of that same boy then making it to the U.S. and European Pro Golf Tours? One in seven million. The odds of the Big Easy winning the Open Championship once and the U.S. Open Championship twice? One in 780 million. The odds of this professional golfer having a child diagnosed with autism? One in 110. Ernie Els encourages you to learn the signs of autism at autismspeaks.org. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Autism Speaks. It's time to listen. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council.
3: Hi, it's Practical Polly's radio show. If you're just figuring out that healthier cooking oils are better than solid fats, you may be asking now, what am I going to do with all these tubs of lard? Ever had one of those moments when your favorite skinny jeans feel too tightly tailored? (laughs) Generously apply lard to your hips and thighs and those fancy pants will slide on like a dream. Or here's a family-friendly idea. How about making your yard into a lard fun park? Frost your driveway with a nice thick coating and give those kiddos a downhill thrill no matter what time of year. Having a bad hair day? Yep. A little lump of lard can tame your flyaways in a jiffy. So there's no need for that lard to go to waste or to your waste. But get your best heart-healthy trade-up with healthier oils like canola, olive, or other vegetable oils, which can actually lower your chances for heart disease. Now that's a tip worth keeping for life. Learn more at heart.org Face the Fats. Canola Info is the national supporter of the American Heart Association's Face the Fats campaign.
0: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, I'm Armin Bront, and I'm speaking with Jennifer Lear, who's the author of Parent Speak: What's Wrong with How We Talk to Our Children and What to Say Instead. Uh, so, want to get onto some some of the other ones that that come in here. Things like, you know, that I think a lot of parents say with with the intention of instilling good manners in our children. Uh, things like, can you say thank you or share or say you're sorry. That sort of stuff where I I think the the intention is, well, kids don't naturally know to say they're sorry or that they should say thank you, so we need to tell them these things. So what's your thinking about why comments like that or directives like that are problematic?
1: Those are three very big ones, and I think they're all problematic for different reasons. But overall, um, it's we have a very strong need to look good in front of other parents. So if we're leaving a play date and picking up our child, and of course we want our child to thank the parents, often, certainly, and this starts very young, at two years old, three years old, four years old, we ask the children to, can you thank so-and-so for having you over? Now, it's my contention that children will learn to say please and thank you and uh, um, uh, and follow other rules of etiquette if we model them. And I mean model them consistently, because to me, if I turn to my daughter and tell her what to say in front of somebody else, that's not very polite. It's it's putting what I want before her dignity. Because if I said to you, can you thank me for having you on your show? I mean, <laughs>
0: you, you don't want well. to be
1: under those circumstances. And yet, as a culture, we genuinely don't seem to care how genuine a thank you is. We just want them to know that they have to say it when we want them to say it at the exact moment. And so, my approach is to take more of what I call a wingman approach. And if I'm leaving a play date with my ch- j- child, I'll say, Thank you so much for having her. She had a wonderful time, I know, and we'd love to have your child over, and thanks so much. And usually she'll follow my lead or she'll take notice that this is when you say it and she'll notice that the other it makes other people happy to hear it. And she'll take in that information and eventually she'll get there herself. She won't say it maybe at two or three all the time. but And I've had great success with this with my children. They come to say it on their own, three, four, five, six later on, and they'll say thank you at times we don't think are, is appropriate because they genuinely feel it. And for me, I think it's it's better late than coerced. That's my motto. So if if for some reason my child has forgot to say thank you for a gift or something, and I jump in and say thanks so much, when we get home I'll, or when we're out of sight of the person, I'll say, oh, I worry that she didn't think you appreciated it. And she's like, oh, no, I did. I was just thinking about something else oh, how would you like to say thank you? And then we can decide together, maybe a phone call, send a text with a photo, or, you know, even an old-fashioned thank you note. It's And I find people are genuinely delighted and that they live through the two seconds of not having their gift or um, <laughs> their play date thanked in that moment. Because they've already been thanked by me, the adult who knows, who knows etiquette right. it, more
0: inside and out. Well, you mentioned gift. Now, that's something I think, is a little bit different than a play date. I mean, is somebody if if there's a holiday or somebody gives you a, a, a nice birthday present, that's a little yes, harder it, to not say thank you for and, and well, have that be it, okay. And I think Isn't it
1: very comes with age because a a, a three year old doesn't understand that they should say thank you for something that they don't really like. I remember <laughs> my yeah. uh, my cousin uh, my cousin's son, so a second cousin. I gave him a gift, and I he was crestfallen. He hates jeans. He he has. I didn't realize this. He hates the feeling on his skin. And I got him what I thought was the cutest jean jacket, and he was so excited to open it. He tore into it, and convention would have him say thank you to me. But he just was so excited, and he was crestfallen. And I said, Oh, you don't really like this gift, do you? And he said, I hate how jean feels on my skin. And I said. Let's return it, and you and I go shopping together. And he was so delighted by that. He said, thank you. And then we actually went out and had a good time together when we normally wouldn't have. So I appreciated the fact that he could still be real. I know by the time he was seven, he would probably say thank you and suck it up and not share that with me. But I was hoping that I was opening up like I'm someone you can be honest with, and, and I actually think it's better. In some circumstances,
0: certainly. Yeah, and so I, wouldn't you say that there's a there's a place for I hate this yes, you know the but, white but, but lie I, I do, kind of a thing or understanding that what you say now yes, could affect them. Yes, and that's
1: when you're older. I think yeah. that you can start gauging that. But once we put on children who uh, don't, they have not been. I'm not dying to rush children into white lies. I would love rather have them be more authentic and an adult be able to handle the fact that the child is disappointed. Um, And I know this is counter to popular um, culture because it really was so much more meaningful to me to understand this information about my cousin and to then have a lovely time shopping with him. And all of that loveliness would have been lost if he had to say, thank you so much, I love it. And I would say, you're welcome.
0: You know, I'm curious, another thing that you didn't talk about this in the book, but I, I would imagine that you think about this kind of thing. Um, threats that don't ever come true. I mean, threats that are not threat, like I'm going to do something to you, but, oh, if you do that, you're going to slam your hand in the door and there's, you're going to break a bone or you're going to put somebody's eyes out. Those kinds of things but I, I, I kind think kind of made a me more about.
1: under the category of be careful. I do have a chapter on be careful. Um, yeah, you, yeah. Uh, and to that, I would say... I absolutely would teach my children not to run into the street. You know, when they're too young, to, I would, I'd go to the curb, look, cars are coming by. If you go um, step into it, it's very dangerous. And it's my responsibility as an adult to watch my child who's cognitively too young to totally take in that information and, say, and make sure she doesn't get, go into the street and otherwise play in a different part, you know, play in the backyard where it's safe if I want to take my eyes off them, and they will learn that you have to, um, you know, not step into into the street. But in terms of um, playing, I really trust humans to because we're born with so many senses, and everything that we're doing at all times – particularly babies they're just taking in everything they're in a constant state of learning so they're scientists they're grabbing things holding on seeing if they need to go tighter go duck under they don't want to instinctually they don't want to die or hurt themselves as much as we don't want them to that's why we have these senses. they've been honed over hundreds of thousands of years and so if we can trust our kids and the way to do that is to observe them because you as much if you could spend 20 minutes a day watching your baby grow you can see what they're capable of and it's pretty miraculous and like i said my son is a flipper he does incredible things it, he he makes most people's hearts stop but i am and i am a very anxious person but i am so confident in his ability to gauge what his, his he can do that i turn it over to him otherwise i couldn't live <laughs>
0: Yeah, I would think so. So you're you're giving him a lot of flexibility and putting a lot of trust in him, and then you've got something—a a chapter which is, I, I think, also very interesting about behave yourself, which is which seems to imply to it that you add to, that the child already knows what behave yourself means in every situation. It's kind of like the thank yous. Is that something that they grow into, or do we assume that My they know? My
1: point in that chapter in behave yourself is. If you are asking them to do something that's reasonable and they're not doing it, then their behavior is meeting a more important need for them. So, for instance, if my child is screaming or cranky or something and I am asking them to be quiet and they're just not responding, usually they're hot, tired, or hungry or they haven't had enough chance to run around, and they have that energy in their body. So if I'd say go outside, instead of telling a child to sit quietly because I want them to, I'd say, it sounds like you need to get energy out. Can you go outside and do that? Does that make sense? It does. It does, yeah.
0: (laughs) And I've been speaking with Jennifer Lear, who's the author of Parents Speak, What's Wrong with How We Talk to Our Children and What to Say Instead? Jennifer, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me. You must be your fairy godmother. Yes. It doesn't take a very godmother to tell you that the right fit means everything. Good. Heavens, child. You can't go in that. Children under four foot nine need to be in a booster seat because they aren't ready for adult safety belts alone. Many parents miss
3: the important step of booster seats. Maybe you better explain things to him. Booster seats raise your child up so that a safety belt designed for adults will fit and protect them properly. Oh that
1: does make a difference. Remember that four foot nine is the magic number. And get your little pumpkin
3: there safely <laughs> in a booster seat.
1: Hop in, my dear. Oh, thank you. And like Cinderella, you can live happily ever after. It's like a dream, a wonderful dream come true. For more information, visit boosterseat.gov. This has been a message from the U.S. Department of Transportation and the Ad Council.
0: Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat. You know, as we talk more and more about globalization, I get a question more and more often about learning second languages. Dear Mr. Dad, my husband and I are both American and speak only English. We've heard that it's good to expose children to other languages. Is it really? If so, when and how do we do it? Well, there's absolutely no question that learning a second language is good for kids and adults. And here's a little bit of information on why that is. First, it boosts academic achievement. Literally dozens of studies have found that children who study a foreign language get better grades and score higher on standardized tests. More specifically, kids who learn more than one language do better than their monolingual, those are kids who learn only one language, peers, on verbal and math exams. Yes, math. According to some experts, a new language requires an understanding of patterns and deciphering puzzles, both of which are related to mathematics. It's good for the brain. Children who learn additional languages have longer attention spans and better memory. They also have better listening and critical thinking skills and are more creative problem solvers. It's good for the brain later in life, too. A study published in the Journal of Neurology found that people who speak a second language develop dementia an average of four and a half years later than those who speak only one language, What's even more fascinating about this study is that it found the same benefits in people who were illiterate. And the more languages, the better. Magali Perquin, a researcher at the Public Research Center for Health in Luxembourg, studied men and women who spoke two to seven languages. Perquin found that those who spoke three were three times less likely to have cognitive problems than bilinguals, again, those who spoke only two languages, and those who spoke four were more than five times less likely to develop cognitive problems than bilinguals. Pretty cool. It could also help with employment. The U.S. may be the dominant economic power in the world, but when it comes to jobs, Americans are competing against people from all over the world. Speaking more than one language opens up job possibilities in other countries and with U.S. companies that do business overseas. A study done at the Thunderbird School of Global Management, which has a foreign language requirement and is where I got my MBA, found that graduates felt that knowing a foreign language had given them a competitive advantage in getting hired and improved their career path. It shrinks the world. Knowing other languages, even just a little bit, makes it easier and a lot more fun to travel and experience other cultures. Now, as far as where to begin, the simple answer is as soon as possible. Some studies indicate that starting at about the time puberty kicks in, we lose the ability to hear and reproduce sounds from other languages. That explains why most people who move to a new country as adults can't ever quite lose their accent. But their children master the host language, including idioms, slang, and even swearing, accent-free. Since you and your husband speak only English, teaching your child the new language will be challenging but there are some great resources out there. Just Google language learning for kids. The two I'm most familiar with are Whistlefritz, which is whistlefritz.com, and Little Pim, littlepim.com, both of which are a great way to introduce your child and yourself to another language.